Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is December 21st, and I'm your healthcare show host, Christine Hargis. Next week, we're going to be replaying our favorite episodes from last year. So for the last time in 2016, I am welcoming our regular healthcare contributor, Todd Campbell, to the show, phoning in. Hi, Todd. Hi, happy holidays to you and uh, everyone who's tuning in today. Thank you very much, and happy holidays to you and your family as well. Thanks. I tried to find uh, an ugly holiday sweater to wear today, but uh, unfortunately, all I could find was a red one, so I went with that. Hey, that counts for something. That's festive. (laughs) I'm I'm over here in my black and white checkers, so maybe not as festive. (laughs) Just wait until next week, though. Anywho, so we've been pretty newsy on our healthcare show lately, and so I figured in keeping with the trend, the first part of our show will be something interesting from the healthcare news scene in the past week, and then after that, we'll move on to a listener question about the 21st Century Cures Act, and also some stock picks for 2017. So first things first, some exciting Alzheimer's research results from a company called Acadia Pharmaceuticals came out yesterday. Really, really interesting data, and I think that it's very helpful to walk investors through both the the, the pluses and potentially the minuses associated with the information that was released by Acadia Pharmaceuticals. I don't think this is a stock that we talked about in the past on the show, Christine, do you? I don't believe that we ever have talked about them, but the deal with them is they've got this one drug, it's called Nuplizid. And it is already approved for Parkinson's Parkinson's disease psychosis, and now they're testing it in Alzheimer's disease psychosis. Right. So this year, it just launched this drug, Duplazid, um, for the treatment of hallucinations and delusions within Parkinson's patients. Um, It's estimated that about 40% of all Parkinson's patients suffer from um, psychosis uh, that this drug can, can address. And the company is researching this drug across a number of different um, similar, we'll call it, indications where they think they may also be able to help. And one of those indications, obviously, is Alzheimer's disease, where they've been evaluating the drug in treating Alzheimer's disease psychosis, which is estimated to affect between 25% and 50% of the uh, Alzheimer's disease population. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that's a much larger number of people total. Yeah, yeah. You go from uh, 40% of a million Parkinson's, so that's 400,000, to even 25% of the 5 million Alzheimer's disease patients, that's an extra million. So you're you're talking about potentially going from being able to address 400,000 people to address, you know, (laughs) know, 1.5 million. So the news that came out yesterday was some data from phase two saying that they had success and that at uh, six weeks into the trial, there was a statistical benefit and the stock was up 12% on this news. Yeah, the stock was was uh, slated to open pre-market up as much as 40%, right? So that's why I missed that. Yeah, don't ever don't ever trust pre-market or aftermarket. There are liquid market quotes, and they just they're not going to tell you anything other than maybe direction. They'll tell you you know if it's indicated up or down, but I wouldn't count on up forty or down forty percent read. That's crazy. Uh, yeah, you know once it opened up, you know the 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 shares traded pretty volatilely. It got down into a single digit gain, and then it went back up to a double digit gain by the end of the day. And I think the reason for all of that is that a we've been desperate for new advances in Alzheimer's disease treatment, right? There's just, there's not a lot of good treatments out there. They, 
the only things we have out there treat the symptoms. They don't curb or crimp the disease. Yeah, every um, stock working in this space has been extremely volatile, trading emotionally up, down, every which way on Alzheimer's news. Right. And, you know, big disclaimer, right? Even the data we're giving you today is phase two data. And if if any indication is shown that phase two data does not hold a lot of water, it's uh, Alzheimer's disease. So you've got to take this with a big grain of salt. But there's another reason that I want investors to take this with a big grain of salt. Yes, and that's there is. The, Go for it. What, what was that, Christine? I said, yes, there is. I, I was going to say it if you weren't going to, but lay it out. Yeah, well, I don't know if it's the same thing that you're going to mention, but I I wasn't thrilled with the p-value. Yep, <laughs> that's where I was going as well. So the p-value here for the six weeks was 0.045, which, reminder about p-values, it's a statistical measure. Basically, you want to see less than 0.05. So we had 0.045, that's green light in the clear, you're fine, but that's kind of close to that threshold of 0.05. Especially with a small patient population, I mean, I don't want to call it tiny. I mean, they they study it. One hundred eighty-one. Yeah, but compared to how big this indication is, uh, and how big previous Alzheimer's disease studies is, this doesn't feel like a lot of patients to me. Right, and some other things to note here is that in the Parkinson's disease trial, you had a p-value of point zero zero one, which that is way, way, way below the point zero five. That's the traditional threshold. The other thing yeah, that's the gold standard number, right, Christine? You mm-hmm. want that's what you'd want to have. Yep, absolutely. The other detail that's worth mentioning is that so I, I mentioned that this data was from six weeks. When you look at the twelve week numbers, the treatment group that was receiving this drug, their numbers held steady. But the placebo group experienced a, a placebo effect that brought them in line with the treatment group, essentially closing the delta between the two groups and then eliminating even that point zero five. Right. So you look at this and you say, okay, I got a p-value of 0.045 and I've got a benefit that loses its statistical significance between the six-week and the 12-week mark. So what does that mean? I mean, the the approval in Parkinson's disease was based on six-week data. Okay. So so you can can make an argument that, well, six-week is, that's fine. Um, The other thing that I'm curious about is the choice of um, the study or the scale or the score that they used for evaluating these patients. It was a nursing home um, score because all these were nursing home patients that isn't necessarily one that you see typically used in psychology trials or Alzheimer's disease trials. And, you know, they were asked about it on the conference call and, and they did say that another more common scoring system that was used that didn't show a significant benefit. So it's going to be there's there's a lot of question marks here that make me say you know rein in some enthusiasm and let this thing play out because we've seen way too often investors get excited about Alzheimer's disease drugs that just do not pan out in large uh, studies. Yeah, it's a lesson that watchers of the space are learning again and again lately. So keep an eye out for Acadia. Um, but we'll move on from them for now. And before we do, actually, I want to let everybody know that The Motley Fool is now accepting applications for their summer internships. If you or somebody that you know is looking to spend the summer at a company that is consistently rated one of the best places to work in the whole country, careers.fool.com is the URL that you need to know. I personally started my career here as an intern, and so I can attest it's an amazing program. Again, if you're interested or you know somebody that might be, the posting is at careers.fool.com. And so, without further ado, 
The next segment of our show is inspired by a listener question that came in through Twitter. If you guys aren't already following us, our handle is at MF Industry Focus. And this question comes from Harris Arshad. And he asks us, if we were to create our own ETF based on the 21st Century Cures Act, what would be included? So there's some background necessary before we go dive in and actually answer this question. Todd, do you want to give an elevator pitch? We probably need to describe both the Cures Act really quickly and also what an ETF is. Okay, so I'll start with the Cures Act, and we'll we'll keep it very high level here. The Cures Act was passed by Congress and signed by the president, and what it's designed to do is to reduce the regulatory burden on drug and medical device discovery and development, to increase the speed of those um, reviewing those products that have been researched through the FDA and to get them into patients' hands more quickly. So they're doing that through a lot of uh, various different carrots, including uh, billions of dollars of additional spending that they're going to be sending to both uh, the National Institute of Health and the FDA. And if you're curious about more, we did an entire half of an episode, I think it was, on the 7th of December. So if you missed that episode, be sure to go back and check it out. And meanwhile, uh, the second piece of background necessary for answering this question is, what is an ETF? An ETF is an exchange-traded fund. It's essentially a basket of stocks that trade for a single price. It's, it's kind of similar to a mutual fund, but instead of having its value determined by the underlying assets once per day, like a mutual fund does, an ETF is traded like a common stock, so its price will go up and down throughout the day. But basically, all you need to know if you're not super familiar with ETFs is it's a handful of stocks that we're looking at here. Right. We've got plenty of coverage on the themotleyfool.com if anybody's interested in looking more into different ETFs. Um, it was a fascinating question to me, and it really got me thinking about you know who's going to benefit most, potentially, from the Cures Act. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, the first one that came to mind were drug makers. And I'm not going to pick every single drug maker, but I, I would pick a couple of them to throw into this basket. Uh, one that I would throw out there is Biomarin. This is a company that's focused on rare disease drugs. And one of the things that came up in the Cures Act is that now the FDA is allowed to consider real-world evidence about a drug's efficacy. So outside of trials, do we see this drug working? And that could lead to expedited approval, especially for patients with an unmet need. So your patients that are looking at receiving rare disease drugs. So I could definitely see them benefiting from this act. I totally agree with you. I would. Uh, I'm actually going to cheat with one name that I would like to include in there, and I'm going to have. It's going to be an ETF of ETFs, right? I think that people should look at the medical device uh, ETF, the iShares Medical Device ETF, symbol is IHI, and that's because the probably uh, one of the most vocal lobbyists in uh, involved in creating this act was the medical device lobby, and there are lots of different things in this. Uh, act that helped to uh, increase the well, everything from you know breakthrough uh, designation to the ability to use it in use new devices in in more rare diseases. There's a lot of goodies, if you will, in this uh, in this act that could help prop up medical device stocks. Um, if you wanted one in particular, I guess Medtronic's kind of the granddaddy. Yeah, if you think devices. if you think we're cheating by choosing the IHI, then the biggest holding—that's that's kind of a, a guess here, but I think it's a pretty strong guess that the biggest holding of the IHI is Medtronic. 
It is. Yeah. Medtronic's number one at 12%, Abbott Labs at 7.7, and yeah. Thermo Fisher at 7.7. Yeah, that, so. sounds, that sounds right. Yeah, so yeah. Medtronic, they make cardiac devices, diabetes devices, and more. They're, they're a, a huge company. They're very diversified. They're a dividend aristocrat. So if you're only looking for one med device company, that would probably be my pick. Yep, and if you want to go with the bigger basket, just go with the IHI. Indeed. Uh, another company that I'll, I'll throw into our broader ETF is J&J, Johnson & Johnson. And that's because it has devices and it also has drugs. So you're getting two for one there. Yeah, that's a that's a good pick. And it's a solid, obviously, it's a, it's a Goliath within both of those areas. Um, and I guess I would toss in the ring Biogen. Um, because Biogen's doing a tremendous amount of research and development on um, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. And specifically in the act, there's a lot of money that's being set aside for the brain initiative and also for the precision medicine initiative, both of which could increase um, uh, the, the, the number of drugs that end up in the clinic targeting cognitive decline. Right. There's a lot of money in here going towards those initiatives, which are trying to harness the power of data to create personalized treatments. Um, basically, what Precision Medicines is doing is taking into account the individual variability in your environment and your lifestyle and your genes. And so you could even see there some, some genetic uh, companies getting into the mix. So maybe something like an Illumina that does gene sequencing. Absolutely. And they're saying that, you know, one of the biggest advances potentially in Alzheimer's research come, could come from deep sequencing, which is something relatively uh, new. We've finally gotten the technology now to really, really dive even deeper than we ever have before into the genome. And perhaps in doing that, we'll find some more of these common threads that connects different patients who are suffering from this devastating disease. Right. So thanks again to Harris Arshad for writing into Twitter and asking us that great question. We were actually inspired by the question to also put together a 2017 healthcare ETF with a handful of stocks across all sorts of risk, risk spectrums that we thought would be great heading into the new year. Do you want to kick us off with a least risky pick for the ETF? Yeah, I thought it would be kind of fun and maybe helpful for listeners and to break it into three groups, less risky, more risky, most risky, right? Because we know no matter what, when we're talking about stocks, there's going to be risk, right? None, none of these stocks, uh, no one has a crystal ball, right? So I went through and for my least risky pick of 2017, I settled on United Health, which is the largest US health insurer. And the reason that I picked United Health is because, well, a few different reasons. One, they backed away significantly from the Obamacare exchanges after losing hundreds of millions of dollars in providing those plans to patients. They will not have that drag on their earnings in 2017. And following the election of Donald Trump and the potential repeal of Obamacare, um, it, it, to me, it feels like it's going to be less of an adjustment since they were already planning for that to, 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 to wind down. It's a very profitable company. They make a lot of money. Um, and actually, you know, over the course of the next um, year or so, uh, industry watchers think that they could earn, I think it's $9.50 per share. And that's up from $9.14 uh, 30 days ago. Going into 2017, the biggest thing to watch for the insurers is going to be Obamacare. What's going to happen with Obamacare when, when Trump comes into office? And I think looking at all the moving pieces there, you will mostly on net see a benefit to insurers if Obamacare is rolled back. 
One place that I would point out to, to be a little bit skeptical of is if Medicaid shrinks. Medicaid is not super important for United Healthcare, but it is a quickly growing segment for them. And uh, so if that were to, to go away, it would be a little bit of a, a hit on them. But then again, like I said, I think the end of Obamacare would ultimately be a good thing for insurers, depending on what it's replaced with, of course. And with that, I actually would push back a little bit on UNH being the less risky category just because of that uncertainty. This is a stock that's up 37% in 2016. It's trading at a premium valuation. I like the stock a lot. I'm not sure if I would label it as least risky. Does that make sense? Yeah, I totally get that. Um, yeah, I, 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 just, you know, that's what makes the show great, right? We sometimes we disagree, and who knows, right? I mean, there is there is uh, risk associated with this stock and the insurers broadly, and you make a great point on Medicaid. Um, ultimately, I think this the shares could easily be trading at a PE of 20 on trailing earnings, and if they can deliver the nine bucks. Then you're talking about a share price about 180 at some point next year, uh, which would be a nice gain, obviously, from where we are today. The proof will be in the pudding. You know, will they be able to deliver the kind of earnings growth um, that everybody wants them to deliver? Yep, all great points. So I also picked my own for the least risky category, and here I picked CVS, the pharmacy retailer that you all know and love. I think they've got a demographic tailwind coming on for them, which you know, you've got an aging population. That means more chronic diseases, so more prescription sales, more people coming into their minute clinics. This is the second largest pharmacy, the second largest pharmacy benefits manager in the United States. This all is. Uh, they're also the largest long-term care and specialty pharmacy. This is just a huge diversified business. They've got a 2.13% dividend. I don't think that they have a ton of regulatory risk. If anything, I actually think that regulators will be happy with CVS because they are working to drive down the cost of healthcare through their PBM division, which is the majority of their business. What do you think, Todd? Right. There's no question that pricing remains a big issue and insurers want lower prices. And as long as you know CVS is helping them deliver that, it, it's a very intriguing stock. Right. And they're also they're down pretty substantially. They're down 18% this year, mostly due to competitive pressure. So I think that they're a pretty low risk pick for 2017. Let's move on to our middle category, the slightly riskier category. What do you have for me? Uh, I just I love Celgene. I you know it's a stock we've talked a lot about on the show before, um, and we'll probably talk a lot about it again. It's one of the biggest biotechs out there. They have a huge uh, presence in cancer, specifically multiple myeloma, and they have a tremendous number of different uh, collaborations and pipeline candidates that are going to be rolling out data over the course of 2017, 2018 that can move the stock higher. Um, given the fact that you know they're targeting a, a, a disease that that requires treatment, um, they've escaped some of the pushback on pricing that maybe others have endured more of. Um, so I think they're okay on that front. And there are very few biotech companies out there who have offered up um, guidance to 2017 through 2020. And Celgene's is. Uh, Pretty forecasting, pretty remarkable top and bottom line growth. So if they can, if they can hit their internal forecast, I have, I think the insur uh, investors will be uh, rewarded. Right, you hit on great points. Two of my favorite parts of Celgene, as you mentioned, their collaboration. This is just a brilliant strategy on their part. Pay a little bit of money to have potentially huge upside and minimize your downside. That's just that's just smart, right there. That's smart business. 
And the other thing is their outlook. Projecting to 2020, as you said, is crazy in the biotech world. And they're forecasting an EPS of at least $13 in 2020, which that's pretty fantastic. And management has shown in the past that they're pretty responsible with their their estimates. I yeah, think and one pick. thing that people will want to watch because this could really affect how risky the stock is next year is uh, they're supposed to roll out some data on Uzanamod and um, multiple sclerosis in the first half of the year. If that data is bad, obviously, that would be bad news for this stock. Right. So one more pick in the middle category, your riskier category, is Regeneron. And the reason that I picked this one is because they have got 2017 Catalyst Galore. They have their new cardiovascular, sorry, their uh, cholesterol-lowering drug, Praluent, is set to release cardiovascular data, which could potentially justify its kind of high price tag of $14,600 and could potentially turbocharge pretty lackluster thus far sales. They've also got a PDUFA date coming up in March for a drug called Dupixent, and this is for a severe form of eczema. They have a resubmission of another drug that had previously been turned down by the FDA in October due to manufacturing issues. They think that they've figured out the manufacturing issues and should be able to get the, the green light now. And they're also another stock that's entering 2017 with a depressed price. They're down 33% since a year ago. You're going with these value-oriented uh, growth stocks, I see. Yeah, I, I am, actually. All, all three of my picks are, are down quite a bit this year. Uh, I'll use that to kick right into my choice for the most risky stock. This is a company called Kara, and they are down 45% year-to-date, which that is that is a tough pill to swallow. This is a company that IPO'd in February of 2014, and they're down 11% since their IPO, despite a lot of pipeline progress. This is essentially a one-trick pony, but again, they've got the 2017 Catalyst coming up. The drug that they're making is called CR845, and essentially what makes this intriguing is that it's an opioid pain medication, but it doesn't have the side effects of typical opioids, meaning it's not addictive. And if you've been reading health news lately, you know that this is a humongous problem in the United States, opioid addiction. And so they're looking to find a drug that can cure the pain without having those potentially negative side effects. So far, the drug has cleared a ton of trials. They're looking at it in post-operative pain. They're also looking at it in a chronic skin itching condition, as well as chronic pain. And that, the latter thing there is just an enormous indication. 100 million prescriptions written in the United States every single year for chronic pain. And they should be getting data out in that indication in the first half of next year. And they'll also be getting data in the skin itching condition trial and also in post-op pain by the end of 2017. So definitely a high-risk, high-reward stock to watch. Yeah, Christine, there's definitely a major need for for uh, new, new drugs that can work the way the opiates do without or deliver the efficacy opiates do without obviously that addiction that's you know one of the i'd say that the the main connection between my most risky pick and your most risky pick there is that we both targeted clinical stage companies that have the potential to meaningfully change uh, a big and blockbuster indication right i mean that's why they're riskiest picks but they're also still picks Absolutely. You know, in my in my view, uh, a, a most risky stock to consider in 2017 is going to be GW Pharma. Uh, we've talked about this uh, stock on the show before. They're working on a marijuana-based medicine to treat epilepsy. 
They've already succeeded in three phase three trials. They've got one more phase three trial reading out data early next year. They wanna file with the FDA as quickly as possible. It wouldn't shock me if the FDA gives a accelerated review to this drug because there is a massive need, especially in childhood uh, forms of, of epilepsy that are resistant to current antiepileptics. There's a huge need here for new treatment options. And it seems like so far, Epidiolex could fill that need. We'll have to see. I mean, the epilepsy indication is big. Uh, it's billions of dollars. There's a history of, of various epileptic, epilepsy drugs uh, at least reaching nine-figure sales. And there are some that have eclipsed that number. I mean, the devil will be in the details of what the label says and when this drug gets to market and what the pricing will be. But you know, if they can win approval next year, then this stock could trade higher. This is for sure a high interest story to watch. They could completely reshape epilepsy, and we should be looking at a potential approval by the end of 2017. So that is a wrap for this episode, and also a wrap for new healthcare episodes of Industry Focus in 2016. We will, of course, be back next year for more industry deep dives. For now, a heartfelt thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in all year, and also to Todd for being my partner in crime here, making this show happen. As always, thank you too, Christine. <laughs> thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Hargis. Have happy holidays, everyone, and fool on. <laughs>